right, we are ready to have uh, junior church excuse. Those of you that are four to six years old, you can uh, be excused to your class at this time. We're going to be continuing in uh, 1 Samuel 16, and we've been in 1 Samuel in our adult Bible class, and so we will continue with um, chapter 16 today. So uh, the passage that Jeff read will be our text this morning, and we will be uh, walking through the entire chapter um, and then um, on an observational level and then taking a little bit of a deep dive into verse 7, and that's where we'll find some application at the end. So that's where we're headed today um, with our message. Um, in thinking about the context of where we are and understanding that not everyone that is here today has been uh, with us through Sunday school, I wanted to try to frame the context a little bit. And it made me think of um, times that I've gone to a restaurant and you're handed a menu and maybe it's the first time you've been to a restaurant and the menu has pictures on it, which is always helpful. And the pictures always look fantastic, right? I mean, they don't put like bad pictures of their food on the menu. They put great pictures of the food and, and you open it up and, and you see a picture and you think, that's what I want. And you don't even have to read the menu, right? You just know based on what the picture looks like that that's what you want. Now, how does that always work out? Does what comes to your table always look the way it did on the menu? Does it always taste the way you expected? Maybe it has a little spice in it that wasn't obvious from the picture. Maybe it actually doesn't even agree with you. And you're thinking, oh, I wish I wouldn't have ordered that. Now compare that to going into a really nice restaurant and instead of uh, the maitre d' greeting you, the five-star chef greets you and he says, listen, I'm not going to give you any menus today, but I called your mother, and I know what you like, and I want you to just sit down here, and I'm going to make a meal for you based on what I know that you like. Now, that's never happened to me, and I don't expect it to ever happen to me, but for illustration's sake, let's just assume it happens, and it's just the most amazing meal that you ever had, because this person knows what you like, and he knows how to make it, and he pulls it off, they, he executes the meal really, really well. This is where Israel is in their history at this particular moment right before 1 Samuel 16. They've experienced the ordering off the menu and not having it work off so, out so well. They wanted a king so bad. They wanted a king to lead them into battle, to win the battles for them. And God was saying, not yet. That's not what I have for you. And they ordered a king off the menu, and God selected him. He gave them Saul, and that didn't work out so well. Saul started well. He started as a good king. He won some battles. He gave God the credit for those battles. We've seen that in past, past weeks. But he started to fail. He started to slip, and he had some faith problems. In chapter 13, he got impatient in waiting for Samuel to come off for a sacrifice, and he offered the sacrifice himself because he began to be fearful and think that he needed to offer a sacrifice before going into battle. And God said, I've rejected your kingdom because of your disobedience. And then in chapter 15, he, he didn't fulfill God's command completely in wiping out the Amalekites. God had given a very clear, comprehensive order, and Saul did not fulfill it completely, in part because he bowed to the wishes of the people. He was a people pleaser. 
but he wasn't a God-pleaser. And so, as a result of that, Samuel told him, God has torn the kingdom away from you, and he has rejected you as king. He's taken Saul off the menu, so to speak. And now we come to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. We'll see in this chapter that God is going to sovereignly choose David, the one who he will, and he will use him because of what his heart is like. That's really going to be the key for us this morning. So I'm not going to hide the ball from you. Where we're going is we're going to look at David's heart. We want to look at his qualifications to be king, and it's going to take us back to his heart. And that's different from Saul's heart. So that's the comparison that we're headed toward. But let's walk through the passage in chapter 16, and we'll observe um, what the writer, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded for us in this historical narrative. So we won't take the time to reread the passage since Jeff has already read it for us, which is great. Um, But we will first observe that God chooses David to be king in the first half of the chapter. So the chapter divides neatly between two choices. The first choice is God choosing David to be king. And then the second half of the chapter involves Saul choosing David to be his servant. So we'll look first at God choosing David to be king. In this first five verses, we see that that the Lord says to Samuel, go down to Bethlehem, I have selected the next king for myself. He sends him to Bethlehem. God is ready to appoint this next king of Israel. Samuel is still grieving, it says in verse 1, and God rebukes Samuel for his grief which is kind of interesting. I'm not, it doesn't tell us exactly why Samuel is grieving. If he's grieving because Saul was his protege and he didn't work out so well, just grieving at the fact that Saul sinned, perhaps. Maybe even grieving because he is second-guessing himself and thinking maybe I should have done a better job as his mentor. Maybe if I had been there when the battle was happening, I could have guided him and prevented. We don't know exactly Samuel's reasons for grief, but he was having trouble letting go, but God has already moved on. And God says, stop grieving. It was time for Samuel to go appoint the next king of Israel. And God reveals the family. He said that the family is going to be Jesse's family in Bethlehem, and you're going to appoint one of his sons. God doesn't reveal at this point which son it is, and as we'll find out, Jesse had eight sons. And God says in the the second half of verse 1, I provided for myself the next king. Samuel didn't need to provide a king. God already did it. God wasn't providing a king for Israel, although that was the effect. He was providing a king for who? For myself. God was providing a king for himself, one that he could use, one that would have, as we know, a king after his own heart. The king would be one that God chooses for himself. So Samuel responds to this, and he says, well, hold on. You know, how can I go down there? This is like treason, you understand, God, right? Because if I go down there and anoint the next king of Israel, everyone's going to hear, and the word's going to get back to Saul, and that's going to be a big problem. And he is exhibiting a little bit of fear here. I really appreciated Ted's message this morning from Matthew chapter 6 talking about anxiety and Jesus' teaching about how we don't need to be anxious because we know the Father. We know the one that's in control. If, If Jesus were here in this passage talking to Samuel, I can imagine him saying, 
You know, who made you? Who protects you? If I send you to Bethlehem to do this job, do you think that my arm is so short that I can't protect you there? And yet that's not what God says to him. Interestingly, God provides him with an answer as to what he is supposed to say. And he's not concerned about what Saul is going to say to him. He's concerned that the word gets back to Saul. He's concerned about what people along the way ask him. And if he says, well, I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel, then that's going to get back to Saul. And then Saul is going to hunt him down. But we see this little bit of anxiety creeping into Samuel's life and we see him lacking faith. This is interesting because we haven't seen this in Samuel before. We've seen it in Saul a lot. We've ordinarily seen Samuel as confident and faithful. But we see this dichotomy that we've talked about in, in weeks past, that when fear is present, faith is not. And when faith is present, fear is not. And anxiety is just like fear 101, right? It's just like the beginnings of fear. But God, in his graciousness, provides an answer for Samuel. And he says, well, you can go down and tell them that you're going to sacrifice to me. And that's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice. This poses a little bit of a quandary in Scripture because if if you read it too quickly, you might think that God is saying that Samuel should be deceptive. He's not saying that. He is saying to go down and, and sacrifice and tell people that that's what you're going to do. He's telling the truth, but he's not spilling his guts completely. He's not telling everything that he knows. Not every question, even from an authority, needs to be answered, but certainly who is asking the question makes a difference. So let me just illustrate this point. I don't want to go too far on this because it's not the main point of the message, but I think this is an important thing for us to understand what is going on here. Imagine mother sends a little boy to the store to get a gallon of milk, and on the way, he stops at the comic book store, and then he dutifully runs his errand. He does everything. When he gets back, he's walking into the house, and he sees a neighbor, and the neighbor says, hey, where you been? He says, I went to the grocery store. Now, is that a lie? No, it's not a lie. It's the truth. Did he feel a need to explain to the neighbor that he also went to the comic book store? No. That that wasn't even on the table. He didn't need to say all of that. He just tells him the answer. Now he goes into the house, and his mother says, where were you? Now it's a little different, isn't it? Because his mother knows where he was supposed to go, and and she's asking that question for a particular reason. And now there needs to be a little bit more forthright answer. So just to compare, in Samuel's scenario, these are the neighbors asking this question, why are you here? And Samuel gives an accurate answer, I have come to sacrifice. And he invites Jesse and his sons to come to the sacrifice with him. Interestingly, it says in uh, verse 4, the elders came out of the city to meet him with trembling. Everybody's a little nervous when Samuel comes to town. Well, why is that? Well, at the end of chapter 15, Samuel just hacked Agag to pieces. He, he, he delivered this like hor- horrible death to this king of the Amalekites. And I think that that has probably gotten around. So he in- announces his intention to come and offer the sacrifice. He invites Jesse and his sons. Now the sons start appearing before him. And the first one, Samuel thinks, this, this is the guy, right? It's the oldest He says in verse 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. It's like, surely this is the right person to choose as the next king. What is Samuel basing his 
thoughts on. He's basing it on his appearance. He didn't know Eliab. He just saw him probably for the first time. We're not told if Samuel knew Jesse's family, but it, it, it appears to me that he did not. Yet God rejects him. Verse 7, why did God reject him? Because God sees things differently than we see things. That's really what it comes down to. And God has this little advantage. He sees the heart. We see the outward appearance. How often do we judge people on appearance? You know, it's like it's, it's a horrible thing, but we all do it. But God doesn't. God judges based on what's in the heart. We're going to circle back to this in a little bit. But the point for now is that Samuel was basing his thoughts on appearance. God was basing his evaluation on the heart. We see two more of the eight sons named, Abinadab and, and Shemah, and neither of these are chosen, and seven of the eight come before Samuel, and God says to each one, nope, 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 not these sons. And he gets done, and Samuel's like, okay, God, you sent me here to anoint one of Jesse's sons, and you said no to all of them. Oh, wait, maybe there's someone not here. And so he turns to Jesse, and he says, is that it? Do you have any more sons? And Jesse is, it's kind of almost like an afterthought. He says, well, yeah, there's one, but he's like the youngest, and he's out taking care of the sheep. And like, you can read this different ways, and it may be simply that somebody had to take care of the sheep, and we couldn't leave them alone, so the youngest was not invited to the, to the sacrifice, as all of the other ones were. For whatever reason, David was omitted, but he is first announced to us in Scripture as a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? It's a, it's a quality that we see reverberating throughout Scripture, that David is a shepherd, and then Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and, and Jesus is in the line of David. It's just a wonderful analogy. It's a wonderful introduction to this next king of Israel. Samuel takes his mission very seriously. He says, listen, nobody eats until this guy comes in from the field. And so let's get him here, and as soon as he comes in, the Lord says, this is the one. Arise and anoint him, for this is he, in verse 12. David is described for us. It's a physical description, which is kind of ironic, after God just told Samuel that he wasn't going to base a decision on physical appearance. But Samuel is, is telling us what he looked like. So this isn't the reasons why God selected Samuel. It's just his appearance. He said he was ruddy. Some people take that to mean that he had red hair. Not completely clear. Others say that he just had a dark complexion from being out in the sun in the field all day. He had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. Samuel still can't see the heart, but God does. And God says, this is the one. Arise, anoint him. And this youngest son is anointed with oil in the midst of his brothers and his dad. And Samuel is there. We're not told if anyone else is there. I'm kind of thinking that that is the limit of it, that the town elders are not there. One thing we note is that it doesn't appear that Samuel told them why he was anointing David. It doesn't appear that he said, I am anointing you the next king of Israel. It doesn't say that. But anointing was something that was done to set aside someone for a specific purpose. So at a minimum, everyone knows that this is a special event and David is a special person. So we'll see what happens with that in the future. Samuel takes the horn of oil in verse 13, anoints David, and then end of verse 13, 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So we see the Spirit of the Lord is involved now. Back in chapter 10, when Saul was um, anointed as the first king, he was uh, noted as having the Spirit rushing upon him as well. And so we see that God has chosen David to be the next king of Israel. And now we move on to the second half of the chapter, and we see that Saul chooses David to serve. Verses 13 and 14 essentially are a hinge. And the hinge is like opening the door for David to come in, and it's closing the door on Saul. That's really what's happening. And look at what it says in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So the Spirit of the Lord has come upon David, and the Spirit of the Lord is removed from Saul. And we see that this is an important turning point, not only in this story, not only in this chapter, but also in the book. Because as the book unfolds, we see major characters rising and major characters falling. And Saul has been on the rise, and Saul is, on, is falling now. And David, David's character is on the rise. We see the, the, old, the, 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 the Holy Spirit is empowering David for a specific task at this point. And in contrast, we see a harmful spirit that comes from the Lord to torment Saul. There's a lot of debate about what this is. I'm not going to take the time to delve into this, but there is multiple, um, multiple interpretations of what this means. Regardless of what it is, Saul is facing difficult personal circumstances and it is obvious to everyone around him. The servants that are around him realize that in verse 16 that it's a harmful spirit from God. And they recommend, they proscribe music, that music will help soothe him and calm him. And he thinks that that's a great solution. And so one of them, just fortuitously, knows David. Amazing. In God's sovereignty, he places someone in Saul's court who knows David, knows him well enough that he knows that David is a skilled musician. And let's look how David is described in verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> he said, I've seen a son of, of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. So he has capabilities in music. And then he's going to talk about his character now. A man of valor, a man of war. Kind of interesting because David is probably like 13 at this point. So it's hard to understand exactly what he's basing this on. It may be based on um, his courage in defending the sheep that we know about from other passages of scripture. He's prudent in speech and he's man of good presence. And then the most important characteristic, the Lord is with him. God is with this young man. Here is someone you want in your presence because God is with him. I wish we had the time to run a rabbit trail on the significance of God being with him. But this is, this is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, that we see God with Adam and Eve in the... I'm going to do it, aren't I? I'm going to run the rabbit trail. So we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and God is with them there. And then they sin, and he's not with them there. And then we see that God is with Israel in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and he can only be accessed through the blood of the Lamb. We see Jesus come in Matthew, and he's called Emmanuel, which is God with us. It's important that God be with us. And so God now is with man in person, one place at one time in the New Testament. At the end of Matthew in chapter 28, Jesus says, I'm going away, 
But lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. And how is he going to do that? Well, in Acts, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes in and he indwells us. And there's no more this Old Testament Holy Spirit kind of thing where, some, where the Holy Spirit comes upon Gideon or Samson and empowers them to do a specific job at a specific time, or Saul or David. But instead, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells every believer who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we enjoy today. The privilege of God being in us is so much better than God just being with us. Wind that rabbit trail up, and let's go back to the passage now. This is the most important characteristic of David. God is with him. God has chosen him, and now Saul has chosen him. God has placed him in Saul's court to observe how the court of a king works. David comes, he finds favor in Saul's sight in verse 20. Um, we see that he is successful in his job. He is, even though anointed to be king, he is working for and serving the current king. And he accepts that, he embraces that role that God puts him in, even though God has something far bigger for him. David no doubt benefited from being in Saul's court. So we've walked through the chapter. Now let's circle back to the reason for God's choice. Why did God choose David? Let's think about that for a little bit. Let's go back to verse 7. That's really kind of the key verse in this analysis. And it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Speaking of Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what was Samuel's view? Samuel's view was to do what all of us would do, and that is to look at the outward appearance. Samuel says to, about Eliab, surely this is the right guy. This made me think of a point in history that was highly influenced by appearances. The 1960 U.S. presidential debate, I'm sure no one was old enough to remember it actually happening, but... You remember the two candidates? John F. Kennedy was the Democratic candidate and Richard Nixon was the Republican candidate. The, the reason that this debate was important historically is because it was the first televised presidential debate. And Mr. Nixon refused makeup. It was black and white TV back then, there was no color. Because it was black and white and he refused makeup, it looked like he had a five o'clock shadow on TV, I guess, but that's what they tell me. I wasn't, I wasn't even born yet. And then they had these TV studio lights that were really hot and it made him sweat, which made him look nervous. And while it hasn't been completely documented, there's some reports that say that radio audiences thought that Nixon won the debate, but TV audiences said John F. Kennedy won the debate. 50, there, and then there was polling that showed that 50% of TV viewers said that the debate influenced their decision about who to vote for. Nixon was judged by the TV audience, and he went on to lose that election, although he later won the election to be president in 68. The point is, appearance makes a difference. We all look at people and make judgments in our mind about appearance, and probably more often than not inappropriately. Samuel did what we all did. 
God corrected his focus, and being tall, dark, and handsome was not on God's criteria list for the next king of Israel. God's view instead was looking on the heart. He was looking at the heart of the candidate. So what does this mean? What is in the heart of David that God was looking for and God was pleased with? So let's turn back to chapter 13 now, and we're going to look at what Samuel said to Saul when he rejected, when God rejected Saul's continuing kingdom. And this is the instance when Saul um, offered the sacrifice prematurely. He didn't wait for um, Samuel to come. So in chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel in, in part says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here we see that God has said, I want a man after my own heart. And for this sin, God cut short Saul's kingdom. The sin of, not, of, of this premature offering of sacrifice, of disobedience. So the key question here is, what does a man after God's own heart look like? And to personalize it a little bit, do I have that heart? Is that the heart that I have? Is that the heart that you have? First, let's look at what we know that it does not mean. We know that it doesn't mean that our appearance is an outward indication of our inward heart. It may be, but it may not be. Our outward appearance may be deceptive. Eliab was rejected because he didn't look kingly. You may recall that when Saul was selected, he was, being, he was noted as being head and shoulders taller than everyone else. So height evidently was something that people thought made you look kingly. We also know that a, a man's heart is not indicated by his ability. So appearance doesn't do it. Ability doesn't do it. David, at, at, a, at a young teen, has no qualifications really to be king at this point. He had no proven ability. He had no education. He had no experience at that point that he was selected. And perhaps surprisingly, and we want to be careful with this, but a man's heart is not even signaled by the absence of sin. Now, let's, let's be careful with it because we, we know that sin is a problem in the heart. We know that all of us have sinful hearts, and that's why we need rescuing by our Savior Jesus. David certainly sinned. We know from later passages of Scripture that he committed some pretty horrible sins. He did some really awful things. And if we weighed Saul's, you know, failing to wait for the sacrifice, Saul's incomplete obedience in wiping out the Amalekites against David's adultery and murder, you know, my human heart says, David seems way worse to me. But I'm not God. And God is the one who is the judge. We tend, I tend, to judge the severity of sin by the effect that it is on other people. The adultery and murder affected other people horribly. Other people may bear the tragic consequences of our sin. We may bear consequences from other people's sin. That's because we live in a sinful world. I'm not taken away from that, the seriousness of that, the tragedy of that, the heartbreak of that. But fundamentally, sin is against God. That's why sin is a problem. When we sin, it is an offense to our holy God. 
David understood that. God takes sin very seriously, and he takes it very personally. What did David say about his sin? After his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51.5, it's recorded that David said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's hard to understand because it's like he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, her husband. But he understood that fundamentally my sin is against my holy God. Compare how Saul and David dealt with their sin. We have seen Saul make excuses after excuses when he is confronted with his sin. If you're still in chapter 13, um, when, when Samuel confronts Saul about this premature offering, Saul, Saul says um, in verse 11, I saw the people were scattering. In other words, I was fearful that I wouldn't have an army. Verse 12, he says, the Philistines have come down against me. And it's, in other words, I was fearful that the Philistines were going to cure, kill me, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He making, he's making excuses. He's blame-shifting the, to the people, and he's fearful, and he doesn't have faith in an almighty God. The kind of God that says, as Ted said this morning, the sparrows don't worry. God knows where every single one of them is and is, and is mindful of them, and he take care of you. Do you not think, Saul, you king of Israel, his chosen people, that he will take care of you and his people Saul made excuses. He refused to accept responsibility. And he tried to negotiate consequences. In chapter 15, after he sinned by incomplete obedience and wiping out the Amalekites, he he said, okay, so I'm, you know, the the kingdom is ripped from me, but, you know, can you come and worship with me so that I look good? He was like, I'm, you know, please forgive me. I'm ready to move on. And he didn't take, take sin as seriously as David did. David You may remember when confronted by Nathan, the prophet, about his sin with Bathsheba, he said, I am, woe is me, I am sinful, I confess it. He took responsibility for his sin, he repented, he confessed, he accepted the consequences of it. He had a very, very different reaction to his sin. How we deal with our sin is really important, and how we deal with our sin tells us about what the condition of our heart is. And so if we, are, if we are convicted about being anxious, as, as Ted talked about this morning, and, and if, you were, if your heart was touched by that, what's your reaction? Is your reaction to make excuses? Well, it's like, well, well nobody knows the problems that I have. My, my problems are worse than everyone else's, or whatever the excuse is. This is really important. I need to be in control. Those are all excuses. If we recognize sin like anxiety or fear as as Samuel experienced, as Saul experienced, and we confess that for what it is, and we repent of it, and we be still and know that God is in control, that is the kind of heart that God is looking for in us. So let's look now at what it does mean to be a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, a child, a teen after God's own heart. Well, what is a heart? The heart is the seat of affections, appetites, emotions, passions, understanding. It shows what we most want. You could say that a man after God's own heart is a man whose heart is most like God. A man after God's own heart is a man whose heart is most like God's own heart. God's own heart of love and compassion and holiness 
and mercy and grace, are those the things that are in our heart or our heart is our heart judging and prideful and wanting our own way and selfish? Whose heart are we like? God was seeking after man to be the next king of Israel who had a heart like his own heart. He wanted a king who wanted what he wanted, who valued and prioritized what God valued and prioritized, who hated sin because God hates it, and who responded to God's leading, whose life was in harmony with God's will, that was willing to walk in his way. So let's look now at what the text tell us, tells us about a man after God's own heart. This word heart pops up a number of times in 1 Samuel, and we could do a study in all of Scripture about the heart, and it would be a comprehensive study that would take a long time. So we'll limit it to just 1 Samuel. What does God tell us about the heart in 1 Samuel, providing us a little bit larger context for this verse in 1 Samuel 13, 14, a man after God's own heart? Well, one place we see it is in chapter 2, verse 35. God was rejecting Eli and his line as priests. And what did he say? He said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. Near-time fulfillment in Samuel, a longer-term fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest. The point is, Eli was unfaithful in his service, unfaithful in the job that God called him to do. And God wants faithful servants. He wants us to be faithful in doing what he calls us to do. Another time this word heart is used is in the context of service. Multiple times Samuel called on the people of God to serve God with all their heart. Here's one example, example in 1 Samuel 7, 3. After God had judged men who looked on the ark after it had come back from the land of the Philistines, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. We see that a person that has a heart like God's heart is going to be serving, one that is going to serve God. Another word for serve is worship, is going to participate in worshiping God. In chapter 12, Samuel rebuked the people, and he encouraged them. He rebuked them because of sin, but he encouraged them to serve the Lord with all their heart in verse 20 and verse 24. And then third, we see that a man after God's own heart, a man that has a heart like God's heart, is going to be obedient to the commands of Scripture. Look at chapter 13, verse 14, this verse that we've already read. The very last phrase because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The reason that God pulled the kingdom away from Saul, the reason that God rejected Saul from being king is because he very simply failed to obey the direct command of God. How tragic. We look at it and we say, how simple. God told you exactly what to do and you didn't do it. What did you think the result was going to be? And yet, it's very easy to sit here and armchair quarterback that, you know, from a couple thousand years away. <laughs> we'll get to some application about that in a minute. But let's, in summary, just compare Saul's hearts and David's hearts. Where was their affections? Saul's affection was for himself. 
He wanted to look good in front of the people. He was starting to enjoy the notoriety of being king, and he was very concerned about maintaining that reputation. David's affection was for God and what pleased him most. God evaluates people for service, thankfully not salvation, based on our affections. Not on ability or or appearance. And he wants to use people who want him. People that have a heart for God. People that desire God more than anything else in their life. We look at this choice of young David and the rejection of Saul, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that God wants us to be men and women, boys and girls, young people that have hearts that are like God's heart. God demands our faithfulness, service, and obedience. That's what he asks for in Scripture. He's paid the price for our sin by sending Jesus on the cross. We now are owned by him. How can we do anything other than faithfully serve him and keep his commandments. He may call some of us to kingly service, something, you know, really important to do. He may call others to do something that is menial, to work in his field, to shepherd his sheep. Regardless of the task he calls us to do, he wants our heart and our heart alone. Whatever task we do, whatever job God gives us, whatever he calls us to, it's kind of secondary. What he really wants is our heart to be manifested in all of those things, how we do what we do. He wants our heart to be his. He's possessive of our heart. So why is this heart like God's so important? And first of all, I would say because God commanded us to love him. Deuteronomy 6.5 says you... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God commanded us to have this affection for him. He commanded us to have the heart that wants to be like his heart. Jesus affirmed this as being the greatest commandment. When the Pharisees came to him, Matthew chapter 22, and they were trying to trap him, they said, you know, what is the greatest commandment? And he just very simply said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And it gives him a bonus answer. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is a direct affront to the Pharisees who were all about, you know, minding their, their, their P's and Q's. You know, keeping all the little details straight, but not loving anyone in the process. And ultimately loving themselves more than loving God. They didn't have hearts after God's heart. They had hearts for themselves. We should love this God of ours because he loved us first. Failing to love him is not only disobedient, but it's disturbingly ungrateful. Second, because the person who has a heart like God's heart to please him is the one that God will use. And that's what we see in the life of David to come that his heart drives him to be used by God. So, do we want to be used by God? This is like like a rhetorical question. It's like, yes, of course. You know, why are we here? We're here to worship our great God and Savior today. But we want to be used by him, right? We want to be used by him. Here's step one. Have his heart. 
have the heart that God has. In Matthew 21, 28 through 32, Jesus told a parable. And at, at this point in Jesus' ministries, everything is aimed at the Pharisees. And he's like pointing out to them how far they are missing the mark. Jesus t- tells the parable of the two sons who the father told to go work in the field. And the first son said, no, I'm not going to go work in the field. But later he repented and went and worked in the field. The second son said, okay, dad, I'll go. And he never went. And Jesus said, who did the will of the father? And the Pharisees say, well, the first did. And they indict themselves because they were the second son. They were the ones that said, you know, father, we want to do all that's commanded in your law. And yet they were missing the first commandment of loving God with all their heart. The heart of the first son was dictated or was was shown through his obedience. It was dictated by his love for his dad. That's why he went to work in the field. So what is God calling you to do? What is God calling me to do? Can we say with Paul, as he did in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, that it's my aim to please God? That's my aim in life. That's what I shoot at. That's my target. That's what I want to hit. Everything else is ancillary. I want to please God more than anything in my life. Can I say that honestly this morning? Can you say that honestly this morning? Have you fundamentally committed yourself to pleasing God more than pleasing yourself? Do your words and actions actually back up those thoughts? Second, how do I have a heart like God's? How do I have this kind of heart? Well, what we see through the example of Saul and David, what we can glean from that is complete obedience is a great place to start. When God gives us commands in his word, we need to obey completely. Be anxious for nothing. You have to start, you have to go back to that. We get off that. Well, we all have anxieties in our life, right? I mean, Ted's message was so apropos because the, the world around us is creating anxiety for us. And we can get lost in that and it can turn into fear and worry. And God is saying, you don't need to do that. And it's easy for me to say, well, God, you, you don't know what I'm going through. <laughs> like, oh, really? Yeah. God doesn't know. God knows everything. Well, God, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think you can take care of my problem. Oh, God isn't powerful enough to take care of my problem? Oh, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you will do it. Oh, God isn't good enough to, to do it. Listen, whatever's going on in your life, God is big enough, powerful enough, he knows it, and he will if that is his will for you. And if it's not his will for you, he has something better for you. That is truth from Scripture that we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of. We need to take inventory of our hearts. How's the condition of your heart this morning? Do a little heart checkup. We need to go to the heart doctor, not the cardiologist. We need to go to the spiritual heart doctor and say before the Lord, Examine my heart. Have I obeyed completely? Because if I haven't, I want to repent quickly. And I want to repent completely. And what true repentance looks like is, it's like there's no conditions put on it. There's no conditions about, you know, I'll repent, but, you know, you got to do it this way. You know, know, sometimes, you know, when you're a parent and your your kids confess what they've done, but then they try to negotiate, you know, the the terms of um, settlement. That's not what we do when we repent completely. We need to prepare thoroughly for the service 
that God has for us. And patiently, David was anointed as king probably 15 years before he became king, something like that. It took a long time. God had a lot of preparation to do, and David patiently went through it. He had some setbacks at times, but he was willing to wait. He respected Saul as the king. And do we serve willingly? Is this something that we do as a habit of life? What does your service look like to our God? How are you serving other members of your family? How are you serving your neighbors, your extended family? How are you serving in our church? God has made us for service. And when we serve, we are reflecting the heart of God himself. We can't just go through the motions. We can't just like make it look like we are. That's just appearance-based, right? God says, like, nope, appearance isn't going to do it for me. I want the heart. That's what we have to do. So this morning, let's praise our great God that he has chosen to save us, first of all. And that he did not condition that on us doing anything other than believing the gospel. Jesus died for our sins because I'm a sinner. And God raised him from the dead to eternal life. And that if I put my trust in him, I can be saved. He saves us in spite of ourselves and in spite of our sinfulness because he loves us so much. And now, as one of his children, he wants to use us like he used David. He wants us to obey completely and repent quickly and serve thoroughly and be prepared God has sovereignly chose, chosen whoever he wants to do whatever he wants. And he's going to use those whose heart is like his. So my encouragement for you this morning, my challenge for you this morning, is that I implore you to have a heart like God's heart. Be a man, be a woman, be a boy, a girl, a teen that has a heart that is like God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, we look at characters in Scripture like David and we're amazed at how you used him. And we sometimes can think that that is unnatural or something we couldn't attain. And yet he was a man like us. And he was not perfect. We see that in Scripture and we're, we're grateful that you tell us about his imperfections because it helps us to realize that in spite of our sin, that you love us still. We're so thankful for that. I ask this morning that you would just work in our hearts to make our hearts more like your heart, that we would have a heart of compassion for the lost, that we would have a heart of service toward our brethren, and that we would have a heart of love most of all for you. And we ask this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus. Amen.